0: God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book of Job. Take your Bibles now and go to Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. Where previously Job had not sinned with his lips, he would not be able to claim this by the end of the book. Because in chapter 38, the Lord reproves Job for darkening his counsel by uttering words without knowledge. Job 38, 2. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And again, that's the Lord speaking to Job. Benson on 38, 2. Who is this? What and where is he that presumes to talk at this rate? That darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. Words proceeding from ignorance, Mistake and want of consideration. Who is this that disparages my counsels and darkens the wisdom of my dispensations with his ignorant discourses about them? Perhaps, after being broken down with time and having friends near him whom he feels he can trust, Job begins to reveal his true inner thoughts. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this. And Job cursed his day to wit, his birthday, as is evident from Job 3.3, 3, which is called simply a man's day, Hosea 7.5, which also some others, through the same infirmity and the same circumstances, have cursed, as we see in Jeremiah 20.14. In vain do some men endeavor to excuse this on the following speeches of Job, who afterwards is reproved by God and severely accuseth himself for them. Job 38, 2, 44, 42, 3, and 6. And yet, he doth not proceed so far as to curse or blaspheme God, but makes the devil a liar in his prognostics. But although he doth not break forth into direct and downright reproaches of God, yet he makes secret and indirect reflections upon God's providence. End quote. Although Job does not directly curse God, he does curse his day. Perhaps unknown to him at this stage of his trial is that once men begin to curse the circumstances of their life, then soon reproach upon God will follow. See where previously Job had praised God, now he begins to despise the day of his birth. How fickle then are we as men whereby once came praise and worship, now comes bitterness and cursing. Chapter 3 is the first of 10 discourses where Job speaks. They include chapter 6, 7, 9, 10, and 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, 19, 21, 23, 24, and then 26 through 31. What is ultimately seen in Job's speech is that he begins to contend with the Lord. It is this spiritual contention with the Almighty that God later reproves Job 4, in Job chapter 40, verse one. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, "Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Again the Lord stating that Job had, by his lack of wisdom, proven himself guilty of darkening God's plans by words without knowledge. And again Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darketh counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. In short, during Job's trial, he entered into conflict with the Lord by bringing in false thoughts of both the Lord and his circumstances. See, Job could not understand Why such a righteous man as himself, or so he thought, should endure such hardship. The sinner's unbelief, whether he is aware of it or not, is that he believes his own righteousness to be more than God's. And because of this, he sees nothing wrong with questioning whether God has dealt with him fairly or not. When men then think they are on God's level, they will not hesitate in condemning God's ways. Job 35 verse 1 now Allahu spake moreover and said Thinkest thou this to be right that thou saidest and this is in reference to Job my righteousness is more than gods If tragedy and the pain it brings is not perceived to be man's fault then most will conclude it must be gods When men therefore believe themselves to be pure and righteous they will wrongly conclude god as unrighteous especially If what they receive in life is not what they think they deserve, this contention will become visible in man's speech. The tongue, no doubt, is an unruly evil. And if it is let loose and not controlled by God's spirit, it will do nothing but bring judgment upon its owner. Job, by speaking presumptuously concerning his state, really only helped to prove God's case against him, which was that he really knew nothing of the Lord, and God's ways with men. See, Job had heard of God by the hearing of his ear, but not until his trial was over did he really see God. And in Job 42, 5, we read, I have heard of thee, and this is Job speaking, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Hence, what we observe by Job's words is someone who did not truly know the Lord, Or know the process which God oftentimes works with men in bringing them to understand the true condition of themselves and ultimately to possess a broken and contrite spirit. And then in Job 33, 29. Lo, all these things God worketh or worketh God oftentimes with man. To then speak before we know is not a wise thing. And now in James 3, 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And again, the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on James 3 8. No man, literally, no one of men. Neither can a man control his neighbors, nor even his own tongue. Hence the truth of James 3 2 appears. The tongue is an unruly evil. The Greek implies that it is at once restless and incapable of restraint. Nay, though nature has hedged it in, With a double barrier of the lips and teeth, it bursts from its barriers to assail and ruin men. End quote. Jesus also warned man that the words they spoke would either result in their justification or their condemnation. And in Matthew 12, 37, we read, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Again, the James Fawcett Brown Bible, Matthew twelve thirty-seven. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account of thereof in the day of judgment. They might say, it was nothing. We meant no evil. We merely threw out a supposition as one way of accounting for the miracle we witnessed. If it will not stand, let it go. Why make so much of it and bear down with such severity for it? Jesus replies, It was not nothing, and that the great day will not be treated as nothing. Words as the index of the heart, however idle they may seem, will be taken account of, whether good or bad, in estimating character in the day of judgment. Quote. Doubtless it is that very few take the words they speak as having any real bearing on the divine judgment that will ultimately fall upon their life. But words, like works, equally reveal who a man really is. So if there is not the Holy Spirit in a man's soul to guide him on what to speak, then ultimately human speech will turn to sin, whether it is murmuring, bringing false accusation, or speaking evil of dignities. By a man's word then shall his true inner heart be known. Perhaps Job possessed some of this understanding, but his words will show he did not possess enough of it to not indict himself in God's eyes. It also seems to be the nature of ignorant men to naively believe that the word he has spoken in the past will not have to be accounted for in the future. What therefore has been done in the body by either hand, tongue, or heart will be judged because God hears and knows and all will one day need to be accounted for. The framework of this chapter has important points to consider. First, Job curses his birth. Secondly, he praises the benefits of the grave. Thirdly, he questions why he thinks God gives light to men, but then hems them in so that they cannot escape their circumstance. And lastly, Job reveals the personal unrest and disquietness that filled his soul. Job chapter three, now verse two. And Job spake and said, let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which it was said, there is a man child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for the night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight therefore be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. Because it shut not up the door of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? And why did the breast that I should suck? With deep depression will often come the human conclusion that physical life is nothing but vanity. Ecclesiastes 12:2. Vanity of vanities saith the preacher, vanity of vanities all is vanity. Benson on Ecclesiastes. All worldly things is vanity not in themselves, for they are God's creatures, and therefore good in their kind, but in reference to that happiness which men seek and expect to find in them. So they are unquestionably vain because they are not what they seem to be and perform not what they promise, but instead of that are the occasions of innumerable cares, fears, sorrows, and mischiefs. End quote. It is for this reason That the world cannot truly satisfy man, that the world will not and cannot yield to men by itself a reasonable reason for living. All of creation, God's word states, groaneth and travaileth in pain even now. This life will often not seem to be worth remaining in if we forget that God has a plan for it. Trials becoming the most difficult if while in them men lose sight of God's sovereignty. One of the lessons that every trial is aimed to teach is that men must yield themselves to God's will for their life. It is hard to kick against the pricks, as Paul learned. Yet this is what the majority of men will do instead of yielding to God's sovereignty. But time shall prove that it is impossible to successfully go against God's will and not have to eventually submit to God's universal rule. God's will will be done. In both heaven and earth, whether men agree with it or not. The sooner then that men yield to this truth, the, the sooner, the sooner they shall move towards gaining peace in themselves. Because without this knowledge, most will spend much of their life fighting against God's will. Of course, he who contends with the Almighty should not hope that he can win. To begin to curse anything is a slippery slope that men should regard as very dangerous to their spiritual health. Uh, James chapter three, verse 10 now. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. After lamenting being born and the pain that he believes it has brought to him, Joe now proceeds to conclude that it would have been better had he died at birth. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? There is no doubt Job's condition marred his thinking when he prefers non-existence to living. It is also safe to say when men are looking to the grave for solace, that divine faith is lacking in them. Death is an enemy, and surely not that which should be yearned for in time of trial. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Yet this is common when men have lost sight of God to look to the grave and the false release they think it will provide. But this is no man's answer because it is not the grave that will ultimately produce again gaining peace and joy in one's life, but rather reconciliation with the Lord. Most, when they go through earthly trials, have never considered what the trial is purposed to accomplish. As God will try men, ultimately to lead them towards their own soul salvation. God's foresight knowing that in the end, what men either have or do not have in this world means little to nothing if their soul is not saved. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? When this is understood, that God's primary purpose for trying His people has to do with the purification of their faith, then earthly trials will be understood to make much more spiritual sense. Trials, therefore, can be put in perspective when sinners realize that they have as their primary purpose proving men's faith as worthy of eternal life. And in James chapter 1, verse 12, we read, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. To receive the crown of life, then, there must come trials. Another benefit to trial is that they will reveal to those undergoing them who they really are. Consequently, through trial, men can be brought to see the true condition of themselves. Trials also, having as a divine aim to humble men sufficiently enough so that God can speak to them. Hence, if men successfully go through a trial, they shall understand even more fully that God's will for their life is always better than their own, and that through also their trial, their personal faith was strengthened and God's name ultimately glorified. Verse 13 now of Job chapter 3 For now should I have lain still and been quiet, I should have slept. Then had I been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth which build desolate places for themselves or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver or as a hidden untimely birth I had not been as infants which never saw light. There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly, and are glad, when they can find the grave. Job after questioning why he was born and did not die at birth, now proceeds to think of the advantages of death. His contemplations concerning death are that through entering the grave, prisoners find rest by being delivered from their oppressors. Servants are freed from their masters. And that death is a light and a welcome find when men are living a life of misery. Job longed for both death and the grave and thought if he could be so lucky as to find it, then his soul would rejoice exceedingly. Although Job's thoughts concerning death are not unique, it does not mean that they are right. It is also common that men will often look to the grave before they have the sense to look to God. Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God has hedged in? These are Job's words. And for the first time, he infers that God is involved in his captivity. Benson on this verse. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid? Hid from him who knows not his way, that is, which way to turn himself, what course to take to obtain comfort in his miseries or to get out of them. And whom God hath hedged in, Whom God hath put, as it were, in a prison, so that he can see no way or possibility of escape, but all refuge fails him, end quote. Barnes on verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid? That is, who does not know what way to take, and who sees no escape from the misery that surrounds him, whom God hath hedged in. The meaning here is, that God had surrounded him as with a high wall or hedge so that he could not move freely. Job asks with impatience why light, that is life, should be given to such a man. Why should he not be permitted to die? This closes the complaint of Job and the remaining verses of the chapter contain a statement of his sorrowful condition and of the fact that he had now been called to suffer all that he ever apprehended. In regard to the questions here proposed by Job, we may remark that there was doubtless much impatience on his part and not a little improper feeling. The language shows that Job was not absolutely sinless. But let us not harshly blame him. What he says is a statement of feelings which often pass through the mind, though they are not often expressed. Who? Who? in deep and protracted sorrows, has not found such questions rising up in his soul, questions which required all his energy and all his firmness of principle and all the strength which he could gain by prayer to suppress. To the question themselves, it may be difficult to give an answer, and it is certain that none of the friends of Job furnished a solution of the difficulty. When it is asked why man is kept in misery on earth, when he would be glad to be released by death, perhaps the following among others may be the reasons. One, those sufferings may be the very means which are needful to develop the true state of the soul. Such was the case with Job. Two, they may be the proper punishment of sin in the heart of which the individual was not fully aware, but which may be distinctly seen by God there may be pride and the love of ease and self-confidence and ambition and a desire for reputation. Such appear to have been some of the besetting sins of Job. Three, they are needful to teach true submission and to show whether a man is willing to resign himself to God. Four, they may be the very things which are necessary to prepare the individual to die. At the same time that people often desire death, And feel that it would be a relief. It might be to them the greatest possible calamity. They may be wholly unprepared for it. For a sinner, the grave contains no rest. The eternal world furnishes no repose. One design of God in such sorrows may be to show to the wicked how intolerable will be the future pain and how important it is for them to be ready to die. If they cannot bear the pains and sorrows of a few hours in this short life, how can they endure eternal suffering? If it is so desirable to be released from the sorrows of the body here, if it is felt that the grave, with all that it is repulsive in it, would be a place of repose, how important is it to find some way to be secured from everlasting pains? The true place of release from suffering for a sinner is not the grave. It is the pardoning mercy of God, and in that pure heaven to which He is invited through the blood of the cross. In that holy heaven is the only real repose from suffering and from sin, and heaven will be all the sweeter in proportion to the extremity of pain which is endured on earth. End quote. So often in trials, we are misled to think that we must ourselves find a way out. Yet the truth is, for every trial, God already has a plan in place after it has accomplished its designated purpose so that in the end it shall not be men's wisdom that delivers them but God's mercy as none shall find divine deliverance unless by God's mercy it is brought to them. Whenever then Satan binds us, it must be God's involvement that delivers us. Job chapter three, verse 24 now. For my sign cometh before I eat And my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest. Neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. The precise thing that Job feared would come upon him, we do not know for certain. It could have been God's judgment upon his children for their perceived sin, or it could have been simply the uncertainty and unpredictability of a worldly existence. To be sure of Job's specific fear is difficult to know. But what can be known is that if something is lacking within us, there will be an easiness in the soul, and fear will produce great spiritual instability. Job, even while possessing an abundance of earthly prosperity, had an extremely strong suspicion that something was undone in his life. This caused him to experience a lack of safety and security and an inward uneasiness that would not allow him to rest. Something was wrong in his heart and he knew it. His internal fear was the first evidence of a degree of separation from God, at least in regards to God's providence in his life. It is the deepest part of man that knows the true condition of himself. Whether then things are either right or wrong will be known acutely in the soul. So that even though a man's outward life may appear prosperous, if there is brokenness within and a degree of separation from God, the conscience will reveal it to us. See, though Job would continue to believe and profess himself as righteous in himself, this did nothing to quiet his heart. Job 32, 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Ultimately, what God would deliver Job from was this spiritual unrest that he knew existed within himself. Job's restoration also having as its final result Job discovering God's peace, a peace that cannot be known until men come to experience and possess a broken and contrite spirit. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God that will not despise. It is also only then when men possess a broken spirit and a contrite heart that their offerings and worship to God shall be accepted. Pride and unbelief in men's hearts, separating them from the spiritual and divine rest of God. It is impossible then if we are tormented within have strong confidence in God, as any sin undealt with will prevent a man's faith from being able to be fully employed. One John three twenty one, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. It is important then, if men desire to maintain confidence in God, that they so live that their heart does not condemn them. Barnes on One John three twenty one, beloved. If our heart condemn us not, if we so live as to have an approving conscience, that is, if we indulge in no secret sin, if we discharge faithfully every known duty, if we submit without complaining to all the allotments of divine providence, end quote. It is important for men to know that their hearts cannot condemn them and at the same time keep and maintain strong confidence in God. Something also worth considering is that when Job cursed his day, he started moving towards complaining against God's providence. And like with Israel, where there is complaint, contention with the Lord will soon follow, showing us as well that it is a great part of the makeup of man's fallen nature to blame God and those God sends to lead people out of their bondage. Another important lesson to be learned is that when in trial, it is not complaint that should fill our hearts and lips, but prayer. See, what is not initially evident in Job's trial was his heart turning and praying to God. Yes, he speaks about the Lord, but what is somehow forgotten is that he does not speak to the Lord. Talking about God, even if they are good words, surely is not the same as turning to Him in prayer. Teaching us that the only real antidote for sorrow and pain is faith and prayer. So that when Job complained of his birth and longed for his death, he seems to have forgotten prayer was still at his disposal. It is difficult, though, if men are more concerned with defending their own righteousness to turn to God in prayer. When men are in brokenness, then they will often spend more time in defending who they are as opposed to seeking the Lord for the deliverance they need. It is also worth noting, The Job was only set free from his captivity when he prayed for his friends, Job 42.10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Prayer thus is seen to be the most integral act that men can do when they find themselves in spiritual captivity. By doing this, their thoughts are directed upward, away from their own pain, to then directing their souls towards God's ability to save them. James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It takes prayer for God to move and a prayer of faith to save the sick. Also, no verses are more instructive in teaching us what must first be considered in any sickness. It is that sin may be involved. And if sin is the cause of the sickness, then only confession and prayer can take it away. And make no mistake about it, Job's soul was filled with fear and unrest, even as his body was plagued with boils, so that just because men are hurting does not mean that they are sufficiently broken. Yet even in severe pain, men will choose defending their own righteousness over confession of sin and humble prayer. Barnes on uh, James five sixteen, Confess your faults one to another. This seems primarily to refer to those who are sick, since it is added that you may be healed. The fair interpretation is that it might be supposed that such confession would contribute to a restoration to health. The case supposed all along here is that the sickness referred to had been brought upon the patient for his sins, apparently as a punishment for some particular transgressions. In such a case, it is said that if those who were sick would make confession of their sins, it would in connection with prayer, be an important means of restoration to health. One, if the sickness had been brought upon them as a spectral act of divine visitation for sin, it might be hoped that when the confession was made, the hand of God would be withdrawn, or, in any case, if the mind was troubled by the recollection of guilt, it might be hoped that the calmness and peace resulting from confession would be favorable to a man's restoration to health, end quote. Disease is often greatly aggravated by troubled minds, which arise from conscious guilt. And in such case, nothing will contribute more directly to recovery than confession of sin. For hidden sin to be discovered, though, God's wisdom must be sought. Simply because no man knows even the truth of himself without the aid of his creator. This would be found necessary for Job as well. For God would have to reveal to him his sin before confession could be made for it. Hence, for the deep things in us to be healed, it often takes first trial and then prayer before what is broken within to be restored. Pain and prayer also leading us to a greater awareness of God's goodness and our own previous brokenness. Amen.